0: You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read uh, the, uh, the, we'll read the whole chapter here, and then we'll also then go over to Ephesians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 2. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We, we have, we're not going to be in Nehemiah, obviously, tonight. Just want to preach on some mindsets tonight. And, and that's, oh, that's always exciting. I hear the groan in your spirit. <sighs> um, but sometimes you just have to stop and think uh, and, and learn how to think about certain things. And uh, it can't always be practical, although I think this is practical. And I'm praying it's helpful because it's not all easy. You know sometimes, you know, it's easy to preach a message on encouragement.' It's not always a, It's not always easy to preach a message on on things that are hard. And uh, this is this is one of those, you know, So I, I, I just pray that God will give us the grace tonight. Uh, to, to hear what, what he wants to speak to us about. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it says, is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named as among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Some, some stuff going on in Corinth that should not have been going on. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you for I verily as absent in body but present in spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed in the name of our lord Jesus Christ when ye are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the lord jesus of the lord jesus your glorying is not good know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not all together with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then ye must needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator. And, and sometimes we stop there and think, well, that's the worst of it. But listen to the list. Uh, if he's covetous. If a man is covetous, uh, you shouldn't keep company with a guy like that. Or an idolater. Or a railer, somebody who is harsh with their words. Or a drunkard. Or an extortioner with such and one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Paul's giving them instruction. And the principle that he gives here tonight, it may at first seem a little hard. But when you realize that in the end of all of this, Paul's purpose is restoration. You realize that what he's dealing with here isn't actually all that negative. I mean, the situation is negative, but the end that Paul is looking for is positive. The end is restoration. And he gives them the route to restoration. And I want to look at that tonight. Let's pray. Father, I need your help. I need your spirit to help me to convey these things in a way that is helpful and clear. And I pray that you give me words where I don't have them. And God, I pray that you would just speak for me, through me. I pray that God's word would be that which is, uh, was highlighted here and not my opinions or uh, not my preferences. God, we're asking for your word to give us guidance here. I pray that you bless the reading of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I really believe that coronavirus has had a bigger impact on the spiritual lives of people than we realize. And I'm going to say that again because we're kind of getting settled here. But I truly, in my heart, believe that coronavirus has had a bigger impact on the spiritual lives of people than we realize. And whatever the impact is on people's physical lives, I think it pales in comparison to the kind of attacks that Satan has had on people's spiritual lives this year. Uh, It wasn't just about not having church. I I think about that. But the anxiety level associated with a pandemic. Has truly become an issue in people's lives. The disconnection that has naturally taken place. Because of the emphasis on distancing ourselves. From one another. Has in many ways. Decreased the level of accountability and togetherness. And. And. the, I mean, even just the mask issue, and I don't want to go into all of that, but I think it has added a layer between people that almost makes us not people anymore. It certainly affects the way that people deal with others, and I'm not even talking about the, um, the discretion or, or, or the decision to wear a mask. I'm simply talking about the effect that, that it has on connection with people. So we have this pandemic, and it's increasing anxiety, and we didn't have church for a couple of months, and that's increasing um, our disconnection, and then you've got all of these things that are happening that are in some ways leaving people on an island, and the unknown future has turned us into worry words. I mean, what's going on even today, and what's happened with the election, Uh, we, you know, in some ways, we focus more, we tend to focus more on the what-ifs than we do the what-is. And I was, I was, and I'll just be as transparent as I can be. And I, I sent a text to a group of men in the church, uh, during the pandemic and during all of that and, and asking for prayer because I personally have never been more spiritually attacked in some of the ways that I was attacked in the last few months. And I needed the prayer of, of some men in the church. I needed, I needed, I needed some clarity. I've heard from others who've shared similar experiences. And just look at our country today compared to what it was before coronavirus. I, I truly believe that Satan used the uncertainty and the unrest to stir the pot and create a national situation of unrest like we've never seen before. People had been quarantined in their houses for two months, and then George Floyd died on a street in Minneapolis. And suddenly major cities were burning to the ground. And there's no doubt that the last few months have been a revealer of our country's condition. And it doesn't seem to be getting better. The last few months have served as a revealer. And you'll forgive me tonight if I tend to read what I've written uh, more than I typically do. I want to say it the right way. The last few months have served as a revealer because you find out who you are when things get hard. It's kind of like a boiling bag of tea. You know, you place that tea bag into the hot water and it starts to boil, but it's not until it gets to a certain temperature that the contents on the inside of the bag are revealed to the rest of the pot. The heat reveals who we are. And when that happens, you get an idea of who you are and, and you also get an idea of what needs to be addressed. And in some ways, it's painful because nobody likes to be revealed as lacking. But in other ways, I find it in some ways an act of mercy by God to put us in situations in which we are revealed for what we really are. Because we never knew what we really were. We wouldn't know what we needed to change. And in many ways, Paul was dealing with what had been revealed about the Corinthian church in in our text here. And for four chapters, Paul's dealt with the problem of division over different personalities in the church. The church at Corinth was not presenting a proper picture of Jesus Christ to the world. You see, a church's responsibility is to reveal to the world the unity and purity of Jesus Christ. Eastside Baptist Church is a local church body and we've come from all walks of life, from all kinds of backgrounds. We've come from different nationalities and different languages and different mindsets and different parenting philosophies. And and some came from a strong nuclear home and some came from a single mother home and some were saved as children and others were saved not till they were adults. I mean, and you think about how the gospel of Christ... ...can bring people together like that? I mean, it's a miracle. And and we're not going to look at it tonight... ...but but Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3... ...let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. I might be doing this off the cuff here a little bit. See, the end of Ephesians 2... talks about how Christ has brought us together... ...into one unified body. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. It says in verse 14... For This is talking about Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And specifically, he's talking about how there are Gentiles on one hand, and there are Jews on the other hand, and Jesus Christ is in the middle with the gospel, and he reached out his arms, and he brought everybody together. You know, that wall of division that was there between the Jews and the Gentiles has been broken down. And we are now all suddenly, miraculously, we're suddenly one. Verse 15: having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh, for through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Look at verse 19. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. And of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. That's a miracle that Jesus Christ could take people from a totally different culture and a totally different religious background, and He could reach over there and He could reach over here to the Gentiles and to the Jews, and bring them all together. I mean, he is a true bipartisan, isn't he? We've heard a lot about that. Jesus Christ has broken down the wall of the barrier that's between the Jews and Gentiles, and he's brought us all together in Christ. That's the miraculous mystery of Jesus Christ's gospel, that he could do that. By the way, I just have to say this, if someone comes into our church from a different background, a different culture, there should be nobody that walks through the doors of Eastside Baptist Church that you can't have a bond with through, with, through Jesus Christ. And it has no place in the culture of Eastside Baptist Church to not accept somebody because they come from a different background. No reason for it. Ephesians 3, verse 8. Look down there. Ephesians 3, 8. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men... Here's the goal of the church body coming together. Ready? Verse 9. And to make all men see... What is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who created all things by Jesus Christ? So you see there that the purpose of a local church coming together in Jesus Christ is so that all men all men can see this amazing mystery. Like, I mean, so that men would look at a local church and say, "But they're from that country and they have that language and they're from that background and they're from that culture and they were in prison and they were raised in church and look at them, they're all together. This is a mystery." And our church, Eastside Baptist Church, has the responsibility to work together in such a way that people out there are saying, This is a mystery. How are they so unified? But look at verse 10, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold with wisdom of God. It's not just here on earth, but our unity, the mystery of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ bringing us together, it makes a statement to, to the beings in heaven someday when all the tribes and all the nations and all the tongues get together and we're singing in, I don't know if it'll be one same language. I just know we're going to be all saying the same thing to Jesus Christ at the same time. And the heavenly beings, and the principalities and the powers, they're going to be saying, wow, that's a mystery. Look at that. It's revealing not just on this planet, what God has done through the gospel, but also for eternity. We as a church, are to, when we live together in love and unity, even when we're from totally different backgrounds and have completely different personalities, the world looks at it and says, wow, that was unexpected. This has to be supernatural. And that's what should have been happening in Corinth. Is that they, as a church, had come together from different backgrounds. But Paul had to address the things that were being revealed in them through their difficulties. They weren't unified. They weren't showing the mystery of Christ to men around them. They weren't revealing the glory that comes as a result of the gospel of Christ to anybody in heaven. They were not revealing God's glory to others because of their lack of purity and holiness and their lack of love and their lack of unity. The opposite was happening. They were hurting the testimony of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 3, and you can turn back over to 1 Corinthians 5, we'll be there. But in 1 Corinthians 3, here's the problem. He says, for you are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? What was their problem? They were carnal. Rather than focusing on the bonds and unity they had through Christ... They were focusing on that which made them different. And there were divisions. And he states that they were carnal, which by definition means they were being mastered by their lower, the lower order of their personality. They were walking according to the flesh. And I don't know if you've experienced this. I think you probably have. But our flesh, my flesh, makes the worst master. Master. When, you're in the, when your flesh is in charge, you always regret your words. You always regret your actions in your spirit and your dealings with people. And have you ever walked away from somebody after an encounter and you're thinking, man, I should not have let my flesh lead the way there. I'm guilty too. It's no way for a Christian to live. Carnality will destroy the unity of a local church faster than anything. And it's happening right here in 1 Corinthians. Eastsiders, if we live mastered by our flesh, we will not have a sustainable church. But Paul's message in chapter 5 isn't so much denouncing their sin as it is showing them how to deal with it. And that's the part that I really want to see tonight. When sin is present and it's being lived out in a certain way with a certain spirit... There, is, there comes a time when the church says we cannot fulfill our purpose of revealing Jesus Christ to others and giving glory to God as a unified church body unless we deal with this thing. There comes a time that a church has to say for us to move forward and fulfill our purpose, we have to deal with this sin. Because remember, if our purpose is revealing God's glory through unity and purity, we, we can't accurately portray Christ if we don't have unity and, pu- and purity. And the nature of the last few months re- revealing so many things in people's lives has caused me to think we need to deal with this subject of how to deal with things as a church family. And some people call it church discipline. I, and I'm, I'm not necessarily, it's not a, a, a term that you, you see in this text. I'm not necessarily using that. And, 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 but church discipline, if you talk about it that way, it's not because we need to practice it today but because I want us to think biblically about it. Because I want us to see how how we can maybe prevent it in our church family. I mean, nobody wants to deal with church discipline. Nobody wants to have to go through those steps. And if we would understand it, maybe it would prevent somebody who, who thinks they're being revealed in their lives from making some wrong choices. See, the church at Corinth hadn't dealt with the presence of sin among its membership and I'm thinking about the sin in itself here, the sin in the church. He calls it in verse five, chapter five, verse one. He calls it fornication, which is illicit sexual activity. And this fornication, this moral perversion, it was so wicked. It was just not normal fornication that you think of. It was not even a practice discussed by the Gentiles. He says. This, this, the city of Corinth, it was exceedingly wicked. Uh, The moral perversion of fornication and prostitution, it was common in their culture. But then Paul said that the sin in the church was even more perverted than that of the heathen unbelievers. And it makes it clear that it wasn't just uh, your average sin, if I could say it that way. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, uh, it is reported commonly that there's fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. I mean, obviously, they were dealing with an issue of incest, and some think maybe it's a stepmother or, or a mother in law. Whatever you want to call it, it went far beyond the sin of just fornication. And as if that failure wasn't bad enough, the church had failed. Because the church wasn't responding correctly to the sin. So there's sin in the church, but there's also the sin of the church. The sin in the church is this individual. The sin of the church is not dealing with it correctly. And again at the beginning of verse 1, Paul says it is reported commonly. I mean, in other words, it was it was flagrant and blatant. It was not something someone heard that someone heard that somebody else heard, it was common knowledge. Verse 2, he says, and ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned. And what he's saying is there is no repentance. There's been no action taken by the church on the matter. Rather, they were puffed up. And and this moral problem appears to have been of very little significance to them. They were more concerned about who has a better name and who follows who than they were about dealing with that which is preventing their church from being what their church was supposed to be. If you go back and read the preceding parts of the book, they were all preoccupied with being divided over Paul and Apollos and Cephas, and they were trying to attach themselves to the big names. Instead of dealing with sin, they were full of pride. So there were two sins, the sin in the church, the sin of the church. The sin in the church is fornication. The sin of the church was pride and refusal to deal with the sin. So what should be done, He's, according to Paul? What does he say that needs to be done? Well, they failed to act, so Paul tells them what course of action should be taken. Look at verse 3. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. So judgment, he says judgment was required. And again, here we go. We're going to get all wound up and say, no, judge not. The Bible says, judge not. No, the Bible doesn't say don't judge, but rather says judge yourself first so you can judge others clearly. Take the, the beam out of your eye and, and, you know, and so you can judge somebody else more clearly. It's not about judgment for judgment's sake. And it's not about saying, well, you shouldn't judge. It's saying you should judge, you should help each other. If you see something in your brother, you should be able to go to them. But if you have your own outstanding sin in your life, you can't see clearly enough to go to somebody and help them with theirs. See, listen, the role of a local church in the lives of its members is about accountability. And that's foreign in our day and age. See, as we grow, and I have to say, you know, we are becoming more and more private, are we not? We're becoming more and more, we've got walls and barriers, and especially with, with, with the last few months, what's happening, we're becoming more and more private. And I think that's going to make it harder for people to do what a, in a church what a church is supposed to do. And that is confess your faults and bear each other's burdens and be open and be honest with each other to the point that you're transparent so that you can get help when you need it and you can provide help when somebody else needs it. That's the way it's supposed to work. It's about helping each other. It's about, not about judgment for judgment's sake. It's about accountability. We're all sinners, myself included, My, myself especially. But God gives a responsibility to a local church to deal with sin when someone continues in a sin that is detrimental to their spiritual lives or to the testimony of the local church. He tells that the church, that's your responsibility. Look over in Matthew chapter, keep your place here. Look over in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And this, Jesus Christ deals with this very subject over here. Matthew chapter 18. It says in verse 15. That's how we're all feeling, buddy. 18:15 Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. And I think that probably needs to happen a lot more in local churches than it does. And I'm not trying not saying that we should be at an environment where you're constantly confronting each other about every little thing. No, there should be discernment about what to confront somebody about. But here's what we do instead we bury it deep within our hearts and that little seed becomes a root of bitterness that entangles us the rest of our lives. And Jesus Christ is trying to, to, to protect your heart by telling you if you've got an issue with somebody, just go to them. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If, that, if he shall hear thee, thou hast gain thy brother. But look what he says. You've taken a step further. But if, if, if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. You know why this doesn't happen more? Number one, because nobody likes confrontation. I, if you like confrontation, um, then you're, you're strange because I don't like it. Most people don't. We don't like, to be conf- we don't like con- confrontation, we just don't. But you know the other reason that this doesn't happen as much in a local church as it should is because we're too defensive. You say, no, I'm not. call me defensive you know we are too defensive and when when we're confronted about something you know we put a wall up we put a barrier up and we're upset and we're angry you know the reason that this process can't live out the way that it's supposed to in a local church is because nobody wants to confront and people are we're just defensive somebody comes to us and we immediately start judging their motives Say, well, you have this in your life, or you're just doing this because of this. No, I mean, rather than just accepting what is coming, we get defensive about it, and the whole process that Jesus Christ set up for a local church cannot take place because we're not confrontational and we're too defensive. But if he if won't hear you, you've got to take somebody else, and, and that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Verse 17, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. See, when Jesus Christ was dealing with church discipline, he said the church has been given the authority to make a judgment on an unrepentant, unrepentant uh, person's status in the church. When he talks about binding things in heaven and on earth, he was giving the church the authority. And this is foreign concept, I think, to some people because, again, don't judge. But he's giving the church authority to make a judgment on an unrepentant person's status in the church if they refuse to repent. And it's not something to be taken lightly. We must take it very seriously because it's a serious responsibility. And we don't, get, we don't have time to get into all of it, but you might be thinking, what, what sin should I go to somebody about? I'm gonna make a list today. I'm gonna to practice church discipline. I'm gonna take, no, that's not the point. No, charity should cover a multitude of sins. First Peter chapter four, verse eight, that should be step number one. And I, I mean, I know men that are really confrontational and they like to go confront. No, listen, if, if you have charity, and and there's a sin that should not be an offense, but you're turning it into offense. Your charity should cover that offense. Now, if you get to the place though that the offense comes, and I want, please pay attention, lock in here tonight. I don't want. I know it's going to go a while, but I just want to get everybody on the same page. If the offense comes to your mind frequently, deal with it. If every day you're thinking about the offense. And you're telling your friends, oh, it's, it's fine, I'm over it. But when you wake up, you're thinking about it. And when you're at, sitting at lunch, you're thinking about it. And before you go to bed, you're thinking about it, then deal with it. See, if it has broken the relationship, take care of it. Is it difficult to forgive? Then don't, don't let it linger. I believe there are people right here... Maybe you need to deal with an offense between them and somebody else for their sake or for the church's sake. And I don't even know of situations. I just know human beings and I know myself. And it's easy to say, oh, it's not a big deal. I'm past it. It's no big deal to me. And yet it lingers in your heart. And if you let it linger long enough, it's a root of bitterness that takes root and destroys us from the inside out. If, If you can't stop thinking about it, deal with it. Is the sin a danger to the offender? That's a question to ask. You say, should I deal with this or not? Is it a danger to the person that's offending? Does it affect their ability to reflect Jesus Christ in, in the community? Could it lead to larger sins? If, if the answer to those questions is yes, then you probably ought to help somebody deal with it. I mean, if they're dabbling in something that could really hurt them or destroy their life or destroy their testimony or lead to something larger, then go to do it. Go to them. Don't be afraid to go. Just be sure it's something big enough to go about. See, back over to 1 Corinthians 5. This seems so harsh on the surface, I, I know. Look at verse 3. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And it seems so harsh because what Paul is saying, he makes it clear that in the case of an unrepentant sinner, they are to be cut off from the assembly. They are to be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And it doesn't appear to mean bodily destruction. It does appear to mean he he used to be separated from the spiritual influences in his life, hence being strictly under the influence of Satan. The idea here is that we remove the spiritual influences so they really feel what it's like to not have the spiritual influences in their life. You ever removed yourself from important spiritual influences in your life, and before too long you're saying, This is miserable. That's, the, that's what Paul is trying to get them to the point of doing is that you remove them from the assembly. By the way, this is a good, this is, is a good proof text that you ought to be a member of an assembly. There's a function going on here and that they're working together and they're helping each other and, and they're helping each other be accountable. And when there's sin, you've got somebody that loves you enough to come and tell you about it. So, when he says flesh, destruction of the flesh, it means carnal desire and lust. Let him go live in sin. Here's the idea. Let him go live in sin until he's rid of this sin. That's the idea. There's not a releasing of a person with no care of his return, though. He's not saying let them go and whatever happens to him, nobody cares. No, he says in chapter 5, at the end of verse 5, he says, here's the point that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And this is where we get the idea that this is not about church discipline, it's about restoration. It's not about punishing somebody for their sins, it's about getting them to the point where it's so miserable where they are that they just wanna come back and they wanna get rid of where they were and they wanna be right with God again. The purpose of church discipline is not to shame or or embarrass somebody or or not give them hope. It's not about destroying their lives. The purpose of church discipline is to see a person restored into good standing with God. It's a route to restoration. But in the meantime, look at verses 6 through 8. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little, little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And what he's saying, I preached to this a couple weeks ago, referenced it. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And a church is either pure or it's not. And one member makes the difference. Know what he's saying there? Is that a little leaven leaveneth the whole thing. So, one member who is impure, one member who's not doing right, it leavens the whole lump. A church is either pure or it's not. One member makes a difference. You make a difference. You know, your level of purity affects the level of purity of the entire church family. Take that seriously. But what are they to do? Well, remove him from the membership of the assembly. That's what he says. Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. Cut him out like you would cut out a cancer. That's the idea that the purity of a church may require this step. And he goes even further. Look at verse 9. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Uh, in verse 10. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters. For then ye must needs go out of the world. What he's saying here is this command is not in reference to the lost. He's not saying go out into the world and judge them because you know what you're going to find out there. That's not your responsibility. Uh, it, because if you're to judge or, or remove them from yourself, you would have to get out of the world. And that's not the point. He's talking about the local church body. Uh, verse 11, it says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If a man that is called a brother uh, be a fornicator, covetous, idolater, railer, drunker, or an extortioner with such as an one, know not to eat. If a person is covetous... Now listen, if a man is professing to be a brother and he's taken in these kinds of sins, he's to be cut off from the fellowship of the church. Notice that fornication, though, is not the only sin. If a person is is covetous and they're unrepentant about it, they're to be they're subject to church discipline. You say, well, that's pretty harsh. I mean, because all of us at some point, we're a little covetous and I think that's not what he's talking I think he's talking about covetous to the point of, of being dishonest and, and pursuing things that he shouldn't. Then they're subject to church discipline if a person is a drunkard. Okay, And that's a word, you know, we, we call it alcoholic these days, but well, the Bible calls it a drunkard. A person is given to to strong drink, or if a person is an extortioner, literally a robber, somebody who takes money by illegal, unethical means, then they're subject to church discipline. It also mentions railers, and I already said that's someone who is, of course, harsh or bitter words. Someone who speaks to others with hard, angry, and abusive words. And see, we don't typically think of people like that as being subject to church discipline, but it's in the same list. And, and men and women, if you are a railer, someone who speaks to others in harsh words and in and, his and bitter words and, and angry words, if you speak to others or about others with hatred or harshness, then we are also subject to church discipline. Don't assume that this is only when there's some big moral failure. That's the only thing that qualifies you for church discipline. We have to take every habit of sin seriously. So, so seriously, in fact, that a church must be willing to take a step to remove them from membership. Look down in verse 13. But them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So by refusing to repent, they put themselves in the position to be judged by God. That's what the verse is saying. By refusing to repent, when we release them from the membership, then they are putting themselves in a position to be judged by God without the help of a local church family. In other words, in some ways, what we're saying is, well, you're on your own now. You've got no help anymore. It's just you and you won't have a church family to help you be accountable. You won't have a church family to help you when they see something in you that needs to be adjusted or tweaked. You won't have anybody telling you how, how you might need to change something. There's nobody there to help you. And by the way, this is another reason not, not to be defensive. Because if you're defensive, you don't see the things that need to be changed and you never change. And, and yet, there are people, and I know them, and you know them, that you could never go with something about something that they're not doing right or something that you think could be a help to them if they would just listen because they're, they'd be too defensive to hear it. And I'm not saying that's an excuse. I'm saying that's one of the reasons. Something, you may say, well, nobody ever comes to me. I must be doing good. Well, maybe it's because you're defensive. I'm, I can be defensive. I'm telling you, nobody likes to be told where they're not right. Nobody likes to be told here's something you need to change. Being defensive is natural, but, but if you're going to be a, an, an active part of a loving and and God glorifying church family, defensiveness it can't play a role in it. We are to help each other like in a family, and if we refuse to be repentant, then we are left to ourselves. It's the same principle Jesus taught in Matthew 18, which we've already referenced. If when the proper action is followed and the person does not repent, so lock in, we're coming down to the application, he is no longer to be numbered with the church. That's what Jesus Christ said. And in all of this, I have to mention what often prohibits this course of action on the other side, and that is sympathy. You know, I mean, we're sympathetic to people, aren't we? I mean, if we're Christians, we, we want to be sympathetic and it nearly always arises and it's understandable. We, we sh- we're a church family. We should be sympathetic. We should be long-suffering. But in a church setting, Paul is making it clear if a man offends others or refuses to repent of that sin, he must be dealt with regardless of the sympathy factor. And the truth is, and I've used this illustration with some people recently, is that if you love somebody, I mean, if, if my son is playing in the street... And there's a car coming. I don't say, I don't really want to offend him. or I don't want him to be mad at me, so I'm not going to say anything right now. No, I I would, with all of my might, do whatever I could to get his attention in that moment. Why? Not because I'm mean, but because I love him. Listen, we've got to be mindful that, that if we are where we ought to be spiritually Part of the role we play with each other is to help each other, to be accountable to each other. And I know there's going to be sympathy, but we have to decide if we want truth over sympathy. If we want to be help over sympathetic. You know, we come back to the question, though, in the end of why. Why does it need to be done this way? What should our attitude be toward the person being disciplined? Well, obviously, one reason for these actions is the purity of the church body, which we already talked about. We must take steps to cleanse the lump out of the body for purity's sake. And if one member of your body is an infe- has an infection and it's left unattended, that's, that's no good. It, it will soon affect other members, and finally it'll affect the whole body. For the sake of the body, it must be cut off, even if it's painful surgery. Removing the lump is necessary, but cutting it off isn't actually the goal. Okay, Cutting it off is not the goal removing the lump is not the goal the purpose of all of this is not okay so we can just ugh, let's cut him off like fruit ninja just take the sword and just slice it i know some of us some of us feel like that's what we want to do sometimes but that's not the way it's supposed to be the goal is not removing a lump uh, re- remember christ's words on the issue in matthew 18 if the one being disciplined will hear listen listen If the one being disciplined will hear either alone with two or three witnesses or the church, then the brother will be gained. That's the purpose. The purpose is not to cut off the lump. The purpose is not to expel. The purpose is to restore. We never approach judgment or discipline with the purpose of cutting off the relationship. I don't, with my children, go to them and discipline them so that I could sever the relationship forever. No, I go so that if I can help them to overcome some bad habit or see where they sin, that our relationship will be restored. It's always done with the purpose of restoration. That should be our spirit. The route to restoration goes through discipline. It's not about the discipline, it's about the restoration. Christ did say if the person refuses to be restored, let him be as a heathen and publican. He did say that. Heathen, sinner. But listen, ask yourself this question. How did Jesus treat sinners and publicans? He set out to win them. So when Jesus says, treat him as a heathen and publican, he's not saying never speak to them again. No, you see Jesus Christ spending his days with heathens. He spent his days with publicans. As a matter of fact, he had a lot kinder things to say to the heathens and publicans than he did to the Pharisees and the scribes. If a man is put out of the church, then we are to pursue him the same as we would any lost man and with the same compassion. Now, again, it says, don't eat with that one. It's not about fellowship. In other words, if someone is taken out of the church, it's not about, hey, you doing lunch and that's me pursuing you. No, it's about pursuing them like you would a heathen or a Republican. Someone almost as if they're lost. And, and I have to say this, for us to treat the lost with better regard than we would our own church family, that's an offense. And that's one that goes against our purpose of unity and revealing God's glory. So, to ignore them or to be high minded is to be Pharisaical, and that doesn't have any place in a church family either. So, the primary purpose is restoration so a church can be pure and unified. And before you think this is a story with a bad ending, we could turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and see that the man, and that the man in question. Let's do it. We we'll might as well. I'm playing it off the cuff tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It says in verse 6, okay, we'll start in verse 5. This is about the man that was being talked about, that the leaven that leavened, that was leavening the whole lump. Look at verse 5, 2 Corinthians 2, 5. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So that, contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. And what he's talking about there is this man that they talked about, they almost went to the other extreme. But we know that in 2 Corinthians 7, if we were to, we're not going to turn there. I really am not going to turn there. It becomes obvious that the church responded correctly and in an effect of godly sorrow. They responded correctly and, and they responded with earnest uh, eagerness to clear themselves with zeal and in a unified and purified way in, in that this discipline resulted in what they were hoping it would. It resulted in repentance It resulted in unification. It resulted in more zeal for the things of God. This corrective discipline had the effect it was supposed to. This is the route to restoration. So before we think that church discipline is a terrible thing, consider your own children, parents. You don't look at discipline in your, your children's life as a terrible thing that's going to damage them. No, if they're allowed to continue in a pattern of sin... They'll be destroyed by that pattern of sin. We don't discipline because we hate them. We discipline because we love them and don't want them to stay in that condition. Aren't you thankful that the Lord disciplines you when you need it? I mean, Hebrews 12 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. It is an act of love is discipline. The fact that God would correct us at all means that he loves us and when it's done with the right spirit and received in the right spirit, it actually has a purifying, unifying, and glorifying effect in a local church. That's the goal. That's the purpose. You say, okay, so why do we need to deal with this as a church family? Well, primarily because of what I said at the beginning of the message. I. I talked about the last few months and how they seem to have revealed some things in church members' lives that needed to be addressed. And many of you already know of a, of a situation involving a, a Patrick and Marlene, even right here in our church. And I visited with them at length this week, and I have their permission to talk about this. They made a choice, and it's resulted in a pregnancy. And, and, it, and it's a sin, it's the label the Bible gives it, but I have to follow up and say I'm using them as an example of how you should respond. When there's been a a decision that leads to something like that. There's no reason for us to enter church discipline because their spirit is one of of repentance. Their spirit is one of restoration. Their spirit is saying, I want to do everything from here on out. I want to do it the right way. And they are. With counsel, they're trying to make the best decisions possible. And and I must say, if we're Bible-practicing believers, we should do nothing less than love them with all of our hearts. Receive them with mercy. Help them as much as we can, and because the goal is always restoration, and their spirit has made it easy. It doesn't downplay a wrong decision, but it certainly makes moving forward much more joyful. And this is a time to remember two things, church. If not for the grace of God, there go I. None of us has the right to assume we'd never be there. And if our secret sins were broadcast on a screen for all to see, God help us. Our young people, the second thing I learned from this is our young people are being attacked as much as I've ever seen young people be attacked. And I don't just mean at Eastside Baptist Church, I mean at churches everywhere, churches I'm familiar with. Young people are being attacked and Satan is getting them with with all kinds of temptations and attacks and, and it's amazing what's happening in our culture and it seems to be geared toward capturing the hearts of young people. And we as a church have a responsibility to be examples and protectors this is as godless a culture as we've ever seen and our church family has a responsibility to double down on our efforts to preserve the purity of the next generation. There are young people in our church struggling with choices right now. I've met with some of them this week and I and I don't believe we're at a point of church discipline in some of the in these other situations either. Uh, But I'm using them as an example to prod us to say that we've got to be careful here. Because the attacks of Satan have never been so strong. And he's out to get our young people. He's out to capture them and, and deceive them. And we as a church family should be doing all we can to help those that are struggling be brought along It's no time to bury our head in the sand and look the other way. It's time that, you know, you see the herds uh, in Africa when there's a lion approaching a herd of of water buffaloes, whatever you want, of zebras, whatever. The elephants, you know, they get in the, the weakest ones. Where do they go? They go right to the middle and there's a big circle of the strong ones all around it. And that's how we need to be as a church. We need to be elephants as a church. We need to protect our young people. We need to help them and disciple them and help them be strong because, listen, I, as a teenager, I didn't have a phone that was vying for my attention all the time. I didn't have uh, the temptations that come. I mean, I had to go find it when I was a teenager and now, I mean, it's on a computer screen and it's on a phone screen and it's everywhere they look and it's all over the place and it's not just our young people. I think would be shocked at the number of men In churches like Eastside Baptist Church that have a problem with pornography, you talk about strongholds in people's lives. You know, I have to say this too. If you know you're responsible to go to the person, if something's going on in their lives and you know about it, if somebody's in the middle of the road about to be hit, you'd intervene, you wouldn't be silent. You wouldn't say, I don't want him to be mad at me. That's silly. Sin is far worse than a speeding car. Knowledge is a responsibility because we're family. To bury our heads in the sand if we know of something. That's as much the responsibility ending up on my shoulders as it does theirs. Paul had to deal with that in Corinth because they knew about this individual and did nothing. It was their sin too. So I use this tonight not to make an example of somebody because I love, I, I love Patrick or Marlena. God has great things in store for their lives. I'm not trying to make an example of somebody in the wrong way, but honestly, I'm trying to make a point in the right way in that we all sin, but when we respond correctly, there's restoration. And it doesn't mean everything is normal, but it sure does make it easier. So let me ask you these questions. Is there something in your life that could be an issue large enough for discipline? Before we go shaking our fingers at somebody else, is there something in your life that could be an issue large enough for discipline if it became known? Because it may be small now, but if you carry it out to its end, would it require others to intervene? Because yours may be hidden, but it affects the purity of Eastside Baptist Church as much as the public sins do. Second question, do you see a pattern in someone else's life that could become an issue of church discipline? You know what the proper response is? It's not to start telling all your friends about it. It's not to just go talking about it and say, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? No, what did we hear tonight out of Matthew 18? What's the proper response if you see something in somebody's life that could become an issue of church discipline? What should you do? Stick your head in the sand? No. Love them enough to go to them. Don't turn your head and ignore it. That's not love. Love is a confrontation sometimes for the good of the other person. Another question, are you willing to be the friend of somebody who has shown repentance? Remember, the goal is restoration. If they're repentant, that's not time to withdraw. He says, don't eat with the ones uh, who won't repent. Sure. But if they have repented, man, eat with them. Spend time with them. Because it's in the moments after the repentance that they need a friend because they're feeling the effects of their choices and they're likely hurting and they're confused and we can be a picture of Christ to somebody. Never to justify the sin, but to encourage them to move forward because God's a God of second chances. And God's been a God of second and third and fourth and to infinity in my life. And if, you, if someone has gone to the place where they've made a decision that's affected them but they've repented, don't withdraw. Be a friend. Show them love. Because if not for God's grace, we'd be there too. And finally, in a matter of unrepentance, would you be willing to allow the process to work as it's intended? See, here's the thing. We don't have an issue right now that requires church discipline, but, but it's good to preach a message like this at a time where it's not required. See, there may come a day that we have to withdraw associations for a time, not in order to be mean or judgmental, but because that's what the Bible says will have the greatest effect on that individual's restoration. Because if they step out from a side, outside a church family... And they really feel what it's like to have no spiritual influences. And they're left, for lack of better terms, they're left to Satan's influence. And they only have God as their judge. And they don't have a church family helping them along. Um, That is what will get get them to the place where they say, I need what I had. Because I'm miserable where I'm at. If we love them but we withdraw our fellowship, they will feel what it means to be without God. They'll feel what it means to be without a church family and they need to feel the broken relationship. And I believe that there have been times in, in church, church families that church discipline has failed to do the process, or go through the process because church members weren't willing to allow it to go through the process. You know, the Bible says withdraw. If we ever get to the place where that happens, we must take a step back for their good. If we get to that point, we have to decide that we won't be the one that short circuits the process in their life. And so I ask one last question. Why does church discipline matter? Well, first, because people matter. And if we love people, then we'd be willing to take some hard steps to help them be what they're supposed to be. I'd want somebody to do that for me in my life. But two, Why does church discipline matter? Because Eastside Baptist Church matters. And we must present a purified, unified picture of Christ to the world. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's where we're supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Again, we we are here to reveal God's glory to the world. Don't think about someone else right now. What is it? In your life. That would prevent Eastside from doing that. See if we were to each be so sensitive. To our contributions. To the purity and unity. Of Eastside Baptists. We'd have very few times. When church church discipline would even be necessary. Because we're doing the checking. We're doing the examining. And that leads to this. Final conclusion. I don't even know it's the right way to end. But that individual discipline. Discipline is the greatest prevention of church discipline. If we would all just simply be what we're supposed to be, we'd, have, we'd never have to go to those steps because we're doing it ourselves. And I, I have to just close by saying I'm thankful for people when they make choices that they respond in humility because that is the first step to the process of restoration. Restoration. And when it happens, let's let's love people. Let's give them second chances like God gives us second chances. Let's embrace them. Let's not withdraw. Let's be their friend when they need it because right now might be the loneliest time. But I think this is the picture of Ephesians 2 and 3 is that when somebody among us might make a choice that hurts them and maybe hurts us, instead of being destroyed by their own. They're embraced by their own. You talk about a miracle that the world doesn't understand. Because the world is all about kicking people when they're down. But God's people should be about lifting people up when they're down. And we have an opportunity to do that. And to our young people here to say that Satan's after you, And he wants to get you. And you better take seriously the culture, the world you're living in, because it's not getting easier, it's getting worse. So listen to your parents. Accept their protections. And be willing to submit, because they're likely the best protection you have from the wiles of Satan who's out to get you. I don't even know how to conduct an invitation, except that maybe we ought to pray for Eastside Baptist Church that God would continue to protect us from all the things that are coming at us in a very confusing time. Satan wants to close these doors. He wants the lights to be off and he wants to be empty parking lots. And he'll do whatever it takes to get us there. And we've got to be on our guard. Let's stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to encourage you to pray Tonight, and I don't know what you, what you, how you would respond. It's a thinking mindset kind of a message, but, but I do think there are plenty of things to pray about here. Let's pray for protection, pray for grace, pray for mercy in people's lives, and pray that maybe a message like this would help some other person who's on the verge of going down a wrong path, and maybe they wouldn't be so repentant if this situation arose in their lives. Let's pray. If God's working in your heart, why don't you take a moment to respond. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.